I'm Jeff Newkirk, the host of Game Changers. I talk to people who have done something to make this world a better place. People who are working to make a significant and profound change. So it's simple. Inspire and educate and let's go change this world. Welcome to the show. Hey, welcome back to the podcast, Game Changers. So excited this morning. I've got Judge Echo Hudson on with me, and we're going to talk about a serious subject, domestic violence, and some of her roles here in Montgomery County, Texas. Before I get started, though, I want to thank my sponsor, Magic Mind. Judge, have you ever heard of Magic Mind? I bet you haven't. I have not. (laughs) So Magic Mind is this little two-ounce drink, and I take it every morning with my coffee and actually my kids who are in college and and one's out, but they take it too. It it helps you stay focused and energized throughout the day. So it's not something in place of coffee. It's not like it's got tons of caffeine or anything. It's full of antioxidants and healthy stuff. So I take it with my coffee every morning. It keeps me going throughout the day. It's Magic Mind, and it can be found at magicmind.com. So thank you for sponsoring Game Changers Magic Mind. Now, Judge Echo Hudson, so great to have you here this morning. I know we're going to have a great conversation, lots to talk about. Judge Echo Hudson is the elected judge of county court at law number four, which oversees misdemeanor criminal cases as well as two specialty court dockets, domestic violence court and mental health treatment court. That's a lot. That is a lot. How do you keep going every single day with a positive attitude? Man, more power to you. you. It's actually pretty rewarding. I actually Because of the work that you've done, you've made incredible, incredible strides in this county. Judge Hudson has dedicated her professional and legal career to protecting Montgomery County, Texas, citizens and victims of violent crime, first as a prosecuting attorney and now through her role as judge. Judge Hudson was instrumental in applying for a federal grant and starting the first domestic violence division in Montgomery County, Texas in 2011 and became the county's first specialized domestic violence prosecutor. Over the next decade, working as the chief prosecutor of the Domestic Violence Division, she developed and implemented incredibly successful specialized domestic violence dockets in both misdemeanor and felony courts, developed multidisciplinary teams to combat domestic violence, and created a specialized call-out team for high-lethality domestic violence investigations, particularly those involving intimate partner strangulation. She also implemented countywide policies and procedures for the investigation and prosecution of domestic violence cases, training, and educating law enforcement, other attorneys, victim advocates, and community members as a subject matter expert on domestic violence. As her passion for her work continues in her newly elected role, Judge Hudson loves to speak and educate on matters involving domestic violence and mental health treatment in the court system. She's also the founder of and hosts the annual Flowers on the Lake Domestic Violence Awareness event for Montgomery County, Texas, which is an awesome event. Judge Hudson, thank you so much for being on Game Changers. Great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. So tell us, how did you get involved in law to begin with? What what was 
inspirational to you for for going to law school and becoming an attorney? So I was uh, I did my undergrad at University of Alaska Anchorage of all places and long ways from Montgomery County Texas. Ways. Yeah, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, way up north, and uh, went to school in in Alaska. And I was going to law school. I knew I wanted to go to law school, but I thought, man, I'm going to do corporate law. I'm going to do contracts. I'm going to do something with money involved, you know, disputes about land, something like that. <laughs> uh, and in my undergrad, I had to do an internship and I was working at the U.S. attorney's office. So for the federal government in Anchorage, and I was interning there while I was working there. And I had the opportunity to get involved in a cold case for a young lady who had disappeared named Bethany Corriera. And Anchorage is a pretty small community, especially in the winter when all the tourists are gone and all of that. It's dark all the time. Yeah, it is. It <laughs> right. is. We all kind of band together as the survivors through the winter. But Bethany had gone missing and she was a college student at my college at University of Alaska, just like me. And she had gone missing and she'd been missing for almost a year when I had the opportunity to start working with the team at the U.S. Attorney's Office and the state of the Alaska Anchorage prosecution team on this missing case. And we had suspects that we were trying to find out what had happened and we needed to question them. And so I I had the opportunity to work on that case. And and the town was probably on edge, right? I mean, small town, a young woman missing for such a long time, no answers. It was very scary. And for someone to go missing in a small town and just, just, she absolutely just disappeared one night. And I'll tell you, this story is actually on Dateline NBC. The detective was Gary Clinkhart. And this case really impacted his life. Everybody who worked on this case, it was, it was very impactful. And I just had a very small part, but as an intern looking to go to law school. And so at the end of that case, I don't think your part was that small, Judge. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was compared to all the people that worked on this. Well, was. Okay. Um, but at the end of it, you know, we broke the case open and we found her body. The two brothers, Michael Lawson and Robert Lawson. Robert Lawson confessed to helping his brother hide the body. And he led us to where she um, had been left and we were able to identify her remains and he agreed to testify against his brother. And at that point, it was about a year after she had disappeared. And so we went to a memorial service mm-hmm. for Bethany and I still have the flyer. It sits in my office and it's actually right over there. <laughs> and oh my goodness. Um, it okay. says, Thank you for finding Bethany. Um, and she's been found. And we went to this memorial service in her hometown of Talkeetna, Alaska. And it was a very small town. And we just hugged all of these. And, uh, how how big was the town? Are we talking like a uh, thousand people or 500? It's very small. I don't want to misspeak and say the amount, but it's very, very small. It's like yeah. under, under a couple thousand. Wow. Um, okay. So, so very yeah. rural. Everybody knows each other. It's about four hours north of Anchorage. So you have to drive a ways to get there. And it's on the very okay. edge of the wilderness where you get up towards Mount Denali wilderness. Oh my goodness. Okay. So yeah. it's remote for sure. Very remote. And so, so we drive up there for this memorial service and at the whole town had come out to the community center and you know, when we're walking through there and these people didn't know me, they didn't know really anybody, but they were just hugging us. And they said, thank you so much for not giving up on her. Thank you so much for finding her and what had happened to her. And, oh and it, my goodness. That, you know, she had been attacked by Michael Lawson and he had attempted to rape her and she fought back and he had shot her and killed her and then covered up the the crime and, and you know, oh almost got away with it if we hadn't just kept going to find out what had happened. But and, what broke the case open, Judge? 
so and we brought some charges against him and that's yeah. where our came in. And I found that these brothers had a business that they were working for Allstate Insurance and they they were the preferred provider for Allstate. They had a business where they cleaned up disasters, like if your home flooded, mm-hmm. had a fire, they would go in and clean it up. And in order to get that preferred provider status, they had to file with the federal government an affidavit and they could not be convicted felons or have any sort of criminal record. And Michael Lawson lied on his affidavit that he didn't have a record. And we went and ran his history and found out that he had actually served eight years in Juliet for kidnapping and rape of a former girlfriend. And so when we found that out, we took it to the grand jury on fraud charges and indicted him in the federal. So this guy was like from the Chicago area. Yes, they both were. The brothers both came from Chicago. And Uh so that was my part in it that we- Kind of a big part, Judge. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> working with other people, yes. Okay. <laughs> and so but, I want to be very modest about my part in it. You can be, but it was a big, big deal. <laughs> but that one key thing that just really kind of toppled the next piece, the next piece, the next piece. But when we went out and we arrested them on those charges and we were able to interview the brothers, Mike Lawson, the the murderer, he's doing a life sentence now. He clammed up and lawyered up and didn't want to talk, but Robert Lawson was the one who said, I'll talk and I'll talk about what happened. And so that was really what broke the case open and we confirmed what we kind of had already suspected. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, I could spend this whole podcast on just that case. It's it's fascinating. So if you want to go look, it's on Dateline NBC. I can provide the information, but it, it's just fascinating. But what came from that for me was I had been told by my mentor, uh, his name was Tom Bradley. Mm-hmm. And he was the chief of the criminal division there at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And he told me, you were born to be in criminal law, to be a prosecutor. You were born to do this work. And I said, no, oh my gosh, no, I could never make decisions in other people's lives, especially about crimes and things affecting their entire lives. And he said, no, this is the work you were meant to do. <laughs> and that case changed me because it became about being a voice for the victim. And it became about never giving up for somebody who didn't have a voice and always remembering that you can speak loudly where other people are not able to speak for themselves. And oh, that man. right there. <laughs> that is so came, profound. It is. And I get goosebumps every time I say it because it reminds me. Of I get family. goosebumps when you say it. <laughs> <laughs> and so going to that memorial service and the people that spoke to me, that's where God spoke to me and said, this is your calling. This is what I'm asking you to do for the rest of your life. And I'm not telling you where you're going to go with this. I'm just telling you to trust me that yeah. I'm telling you, you need to do this. And and it just changed the entire course of my trajectory. And I went to law school. I'd, I'd actually just been accepted to law school when that memorial service happened. And so I went to law school and it just completely changed the entire focus of why I went what I was Mm -hmm. to do. I went to be a prosecutor at that point. And that's exactly where I ended up and then came to Texas right after law school and started prosecuting in El Paso, Texas, which is where they have a special division for domestic violence. Jaime Esparza was the DA down there at the time. And he had an amazingly robust domestic violence division. I spent just enough time down there to get my feet wet, to understand some of the things that they had implemented. And then God brought me to Montgomery County where we didn't have anything. We didn't have any specialization at all. Brett Ligon had just been elected in 2000. Not the case now though. Yeah. Brett Ligon had just been elected in 2009. 
I didn't even know, gosh, God, God just brings you to places and he's like, hey, I know you want to go to Harris County. I know you think that's the great place, but I'm going to put you <laughs> in Montgomery County and just trust me. And God, well, God was like, just trust me. This is where you're going to go. And I was uh. like, hey, I don't even know why. what's Montgomery County. And uh, Brett Ligon had just been elected and he brought me here the same year. And I met with Brett and started working here and immediately was like, Man, there's so much work to be done here. So many great things we can do. This is a great county, great people. I mean, just amazing, this community. And the things yeah. we have to do here, it's just been fantastic. So right then we knew, like, God puts you somewhere on purpose. Here's the deal. And I, I still struggle with this every day. But when I tell God, here's my plan, you know, God laughs, of course. Right? God laughs. <laughs> yeah. Right. So right. every morning when I get up, right. I'm like, okay, God, what's the agenda for today? I'd like to know. Yeah. And he's like, Jeff, that's not how it works, man. You, you got to, it's me. called, it's called faith, right? Yeah. You have to have, you have trust in me, trust Absolutely. me that everything will work according to my plan, not your plan. Absolutely. Right? And so it's, it's us really having that faith and that trust in God that everything will work out. So, and boy, has it ever. Thank you so much for coming to Montgomery County. And for our listeners, Montgomery County is north of Houston. Yes, And Houston is in Harris County and Montgomery County, uh, a population of about, it's growing like incredibly fast, but about 650,000 or so and continues to grow. Projections are for growth to be 800, 900,000 in the next 10 years. And the work that you have done here, just incredible. And we'll, we'll get into some of that. But what was it then that inspired you to run for election? Because now, I mean, you're, wow, we're, we're in a whole new world now, right? Politics and uh, all the things that, again, I said, oh, gosh, I don't ever want to be a politician. <laughs> and God was like, <laughs> yeah. God laughed. Yeah. Stay <laughs> away from those words like never, always. Yeah, everyone, never. No and yeah. God's like, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I, right. So I started the domestic violence division at the DA's office and had the opportunity to work that. And we developed it over the years kind of organically. And let's see, what year did that study come out? I want to say 2021. 20, between 2020 and 2021. So right around COVID, I started working with a doctor in at Sam Houston and her name is Dr. Renling. And she wanted to study okay. domestic violence in Montgomery County, especially our specialty courts. And she did this absolutely in-depth dive to what we had done in Montgomery County to see the success rate over the first 10 years of our court. And so I worked with her, gave her all the stats that I could that are publicly available. She came and shadowed all of our call-out teams and all of the things that we had implemented. She compared our specialty court in Montgomery County to the cases that we didn't accept for our specialty court. She compared our specialty court to other specialty courts around the country and to three other countries. She compared 10 oh. years of the study to before we started. She just did all of these stats to see what's working, what's successful compared to other types of things. I mean, it's just an amazing study. It yeah, was what, a, what a critical analysis. It was. And I worked with her hand in hand. She would call me. She'd be like, okay, I need to understand this phraseology. I need to understand. You know, <laughs> so she really wanted to know what is it that I'm comparing and why is it important? So we would spend hours on the phone making sure that she understood it and was comparing the right thing. I mean, it was just an amazing study that she did. And it came out that our domestic violence court, the thing that you do things because it's the right thing to do and you want to do the best you know how, 
And you just kind of keep going thinking, this is the best way I know how to do this. And it turns out that we have one of the most successful courts in the country by far. It is one of the national top performers. Say that again, if you don't mind for our listeners, because that is so important for everybody to understand. It's not like this work is just staying here in Montgomery County, Texas. This is something that has been recognized nationwide. Yes. Above and beyond. And it blew the other countries out of the water, honestly. So it's our court here in Montgomery County is one of the national top performers. And that is quoting from her study. And so it's based on conviction rates. It's based on the time from a case being filed to the time that it's disposed. We shorten that time and which is important to victims. And the way that we treat victims with trauma-informed, just kind of the amount of effort that we put into it. Like there's a whole lot of best practices, the national best practices that we implemented, all of those things that she took and compared. And our specialty courts are really, really just a good model for other people to take and and implement in their counties, which is just amazing. So at the same time that that study came out, which was wonderful for me to see, because I was like, wow, we really did something here. We really took something that we were hoping. (laughs) Total game changer. Wow. Yeah, we did that. I did that. And then at the same time, the judge in the misdemeanor court, county court at law number four, Marianne Turner, she held our misdemeanor docket, which was the original start of where it all started. She's retiring after 20 years on the bench. And so um, everybody kept coming up to me and they were like, well, you're going to run for the bench, right? And I was like, well, no, I'm, I'm in the most successful domestic violence court in the country. I, I couldn't run for office. I have work to do here. I want to take this and spread it across the nation. And I was, I, I'm speak for all sorts of organizations and sharing what that court does and all this. Oh, it's so important. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. And and just trying to share like, here's what's working. We want other people to take this and and make use of it elsewhere across the country. And so I was like, I I need to go this route. And God was like, no, you need to run for the bench. And I was like, well, can I still share my message (laughs) if I do that? You know, like, and so, and God was like, yeah, trust me, trust me. This is what I want you to do. And so I listened and I ran for office and there's lots of politics wow. involved and I, I'm not a politician. Uh, I am not a politician. But <laughs> well, so tell us a little bit about what, I mean, what was it like? And I mean, I understand you're, you're saying you're not a politician, but. <laughs> Kind of in politics now. I am. I am. You (laughs) kind of have to learn the ins and outs. And every county in Texas, in Texas, you run for political office if you want to be a judge. So if you want to be a judge, you have to run for office and you have to win by popular vote. So in our county, politics are one of those things that it's known that it's hot and heavy and you're going to probably have an opponent in the Republican primary. It's a very conservative county. And so that's exactly what happened for an open bench. You should expect that several people are going to want it. That's what you do. But you go out there and you say, look, I'm qualified. I can run a court and I know how to do it. And I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to do a job. And this court is so incredibly important. The work that we do in this court, these two specialty courts that I have are mental health treatment and domestic violence. And I don't think of any other situation that you could have where lives are literally on the line every day with the decisions that I make on this bench. For me, there's nothing more important than I could do 
than to get up and go into work every day and look at the people in front of me and think, God put me here for a reason. And this is such important work. The decision I make is going to affect this person's life. And I have to really think through these decisions and make sure that whatever I'm doing is the best decision that I can make. And so it's right. very rewarding. It's very important work, especially for the person that's standing right in front of you and all of the people in their lives that those decisions are affecting. What you've done is incredible, but to, to give, put some perspective on it. And I can't remember the statistics. I, I know you can probably rattle this off without a problem, but, <laughs> but so the person who's the, the woman who's being abused is women predominantly. And there's a percentage chance that they will be somehow they're going to be shot or hurt or violence against them. Okay. But that percentage is like 75% of something that's going to, they're going to end up being. Yes. You're going to explain it better than I can, but I'll it's, give it's you a, a couple. Yeah. So please, yeah. I'm stumbling around here, but it was an amazing yes. statistic. So one in three women in their lifetime, and these are U.S. statistics, but it also goes international in a lot of these statistics, but these are U.S.-based studies. One in three women in their lifetime will experience domestic violence. And then- Unbelievable. 33%. Yes. Those who attempt to leave or leave the relationship. At the time that they leave or shortly after the time that they leave, there is a 75% increased likelihood that they will be killed during that time. 75% chance. Yes. The average attempts by a victim to leave a domestic violence relationship before they actually make a final separation in that relationship is between seven and eight attempts. Oh my goodness. For people who come into contact with somebody who is attempting to leave or saying, I need to get out, the instinct is to try to help them or try to push them into leaving before they're ready. And so I think one of the things you would ask me to speak to or to really think about in this podcast is what can I share with people who are wanting to help? And one of those things is don't push somebody who's not ready. It's very, very dangerous. And if they do not, that's important to remember and hard because you see somebody who you think that something is going on there. That is something is not right. Yes. They are not there to talk about it. And and I can think of an example that happened over the last year. There was so many flags, but unfortunately, this woman was not, she did not want to talk about it, would not even entertain the idea of getting some help or at least just expressing some concern. And for somebody who is unaware, we're like, get out of that situation. It seems so easy. And I think that's the number one question is why doesn't she just leave? And I think victims, they don't often understand just how dangerous it really is, but they also understand that if I leave, that's when it is dangerous. So they understand Mm -hmm. that, right? In a way. And to tell somebody you've got to get out, you've got to get out, they're going to push you away. And so what you're going to end up doing is isolating them in that dangerous situation. And so it worse for them. Exactly. And if you jump into it, then you risk stirring the pot with the abuser. And that is actually going to further harm that victim. So you really want to be careful inserting yourself into a situation where the danger isn't necessarily going to come to you. It's going to come to that victim. It's going to come to right. me. 
children in the relationship, you really want to be careful about that because then when that person goes home and it's closed doors and no one else is there to protect them, that abuser is going to come after them and say, what brought that on? What did you say? What did you do? That's really going to put them in a situation. So you've really got to be careful about that and really think about the impact of your interaction with that person. So, so what do we do? I feel about, helpless. Yes, it, it, it does. It feels hopeless and it feels helpless. Yeah. And I want you to understand that person that you're dealing with also feels helpless and hopeless. And hope is one of the things that you want to give them. Hope. So think about that. Think about the feelings that you feel and help them to feel otherwise, okay? I have felt helpless and hopeless in so many cases where I am the one with the power. When I was a prosecutor and even as the judge in a case, I have all this power, right? But I can't save somebody's life who is not going to interact with the system if they're going to run from the system, if they're going to not allow the system to help them. And there are so many cases where that happens. And so I, I'm going to tell you, I'll be the first person that I understand that feeling of, I want to help. And that person is not let me, but what you do is you tell them when you are ready, there will be people who care. There will be people who listen and there will be people who are ready to help you with resources and education. And you plant the seeds of education about domestic violence, about how dangerous it is, about the fact that it's not going to stop, right? It escalates and it repeats over and over. And if it's happening to you, it's going to escalate and it's going to repeat. And every time it repeats, it's going to escalate until it's incredibly dangerous. And at the point that you feel like you aren't going to make it out, you need help. And there will be people to help. Every community has resources available. What we do know statistically is that victims of domestic violence who get resources and who go and get that help, those are the ones who tend to remain alive. And if you're going to avoid a murder and you're going to keep somebody safe, that's what you really want to look for is you want somebody who stayed alive and was able to get out of the relationship safely. And so that's the hope, right? Is when you are ready, when you are able to, because they may not feel like they're able to, there may be things that they need to put into place in their lives to think, I need to do this first. I need to take care of something first before I'm able to leave, right? And you don't know what those things are. But I promise you, I've heard all of them from victims and they're very real things. And so their situation, you don't know what's going on behind those closed doors that that person feels like it's not time yet. But when it's time, then they will need that Gosh. help. If you push That'd them away, so, yeah. you're not there when they need the help. And that's the worst thing you can do. So just don't give up on them. Don't. Yeah. And for me, I'd be like, well, okay, reach out, but reach out soon. Right. I'd have people like, yes, you know, well, let's make it sooner than later. People give up and they're like, fine, I tried to help you and you don't want the help. You know, you obviously can't, you can't be that bad or you don't want my help. Fine. I'm done with you. And it, that's the worst thing you can do because you're yeah. isolated. And, and that's what you people need to hear from me 
is that that's not actually what's really going on. Yeah. No matter what the situation, no matter where you're at with this particular abuser, mm -hmm. there's always somebody, we are always here for you to help. Absolutely. And when you're ready, just let us know. We, we are here to help you. How do you, I mean, for me, it'd be like, man, the abuser, I don't want to just bring him down. Like, you know, go after him and just take him out. I mean, because, yeah. I mean, I'd be so angry. How do well, you? Jeff, well, you that's, what I, that's what I did as a prosecutor for <laughs> a long time. <laughs> okay. Noted. Noted. So. <laughs> now, you have to keep your emotions in check, right? I mean, wow, you're dealing with some just bad, bad people. Yeah. Well, you know, as a judge, um, there's. I'm glad you brought him down, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> as a judge, there's roles that I play, right? So my role is different now. And what I know um, from experience is that there are fantastic people in this community filling those roles. And so when I stepped into this role, there were wonderful people that filled the roles of exactly what I used to do. And they are taking them down. If you look at the news, there was, you know, a life sentence on a guy last week, I think, that somebody that I set the stage from a previous conviction that I knew he'd be back. And I saw his name and saw his mugshot. And I thought, oh, I know him. And I went and pulled the story. And sure enough, he was back and and he went to prison for life for domestic violence. And so you now it's one of those things. There are people that fill the roles and there are people out there fighting the good fight. And there's law enforcement and there's prosecutors and there's victim advocates all throughout our community. There's first responders, there's medical professionals, and they're here to help those who need it. And that is one of the things I love about Montgomery County and about Texas, about the things that we do in the United States, the way that we've taken on domestic violence and said, you can't do that. There are yeah. countries where it's still allowed. And I had multiple cases crazy. where <laughs> it's still allowed in other countries. Oh. And victims will come here to the United States and they don't even know that they can report it because they think, Nobody's going to do yeah. anything. Right? Not in Montgomery County. What's the conviction rate in Montgomery County? I mean, you have tremendous success here. And some of the, one of the many accomplishments that you've had is when you come to Montgomery County and there's domestic violence, you're going down. Yeah. Right? Montgomery County doesn't play, you're, you're, right? No, no. The abuser is <laughs> going to, he's going to go to jail. Yeah. Right? So the study that came out, the specialty courts, they're above a 90% conviction rate on the cases that are taken. That's awesome. Again, those are highly validity cases. So, and I don't want people to think, oh, every single domestic violence case, right? These are highly validity. And that's kind of a big fancy term. But what that is, is those have all the red flags, not all the red flags, but the, the big red flags that indicate that there's dangerous situation going on, right? So there's domestic violence cases where it may be the first time that law enforcement's been called. There's, you know, there's not as much of a serious case going on in some situations, or there may be some things that different cases that don't seem as serious. When it gets to the point that we're looking at repetition, we're looking at escalation, we're looking at the use of a weapon or threatening a weapon, we're looking at strangulation, we're looking at those red flags that indicate that this situation is getting serious, right? 
Those are the ones that we really want to focus in on. Those are the ones that that domestic violence division takes and and handles. And those are the ones where we have that high conviction rate. Those are the ones that it's important to get that conviction and to make sure those victims get the resources. So that's kind of, I want to separate those out because I think people about a high conviction rate and it's like, oh, they're just trying to, you know, convict somebody on every single case. That's not really necessarily true. Um, a lot of the cases when it's a first time offense and somebody comes in, there's rehabilitation that goes on. There's counseling that happens and then the state will dismiss the case. And there's so many times where that's appropriate because that person then yeah. learns the tools to deescalate appropriately. And that's what we want. We don't want more violence, right? Oh, um, we're trying to prevent that. Absolutely. And so we want to give somebody an opportunity to do that. And that happens all the time in my court. And so I want to give somebody that opportunity to go back into our community and to do all the things the right way in their family and in our community and in our society. And if you can do that, then more power to you. You don't need a right. conviction. Right, right. We don't that for you. So there's there's two ends of the spectrum here. And so when we talk about the conviction rate and that highly lethality case, it's a completely different situation. Yeah. But both need to be addressed. And thank goodness, because of your work, much of it is being addressed yeah. in Montgomery County. Yeah. And I think that education about, and that was one of the things that really kind of took root with this domestic violence division is before we did all of this, we didn't know what the red flags were. We didn't know what high lethality was. We didn't know that strangulation meant that once there's strangulation or hands on the neck and somebody's using that in a domestic violence relationship, we didn't know that there was a seven to 800% increased chance of a homicide in that relationship. We didn't know that. Wow. Without wow. that, we would have missed murders that were likely to happen. We didn't know that we could separate cases and look at them and say, this one's really dangerous and this one can probably be rehabilitated. And so, so I think if, the ability to do that is amazing. If you know somebody has had the abuser attack their neck, yes. you know that they are in a very dangerous situation. It is the biggest red flag. And it's also the newest one with all of the studies that we have. It is the newest one. Just by asking the questions of what's going on with the victim in the relationship, Casey Gwynn and his team over in San Diego, they found that it was a missed question. And they did a case study on victims who had been killed by intimate partner strangulation. And that study has been done over and over and over and over again, all over the country and all over in other countries. And strangulation is the biggest red flag. We used to think it was the weapon a gun and that's a 500% increased likelihood of a homicide. And it's actually strangulation is a bigger red flag. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, so much good work that you've done and thank you for all of your work and making Montgomery County a, a better place to live. Can you share with us maybe a success story or two that you've had here in Montgomery County? Gosh, I have a ton of them. I have victims that I still keep in touch with and I know that's wonderful. Yes, I have a couple of people that just were friends on Facebook, honestly. <laughs> so, wow, okay. Um, just kind well, of you, you have impacted so many people's lives. It's I mean, important. Incredible. I have a I have a saying and it's a plaque and and it used to sit above the wall where victims would come into my office and 
It would actually sit behind their heads. And now it sits on the wall where I walk in from my chambers to the courtroom. And I look Mm -hmm. at it every day and it says, if we have changed the world for one person, then we have changed the world. And it's so important that the person in front of you is the person that matters for the decision that you make, right? And when I look at each and every case in front of me and for my entire career, it has always been about how do I help this person? right? If it's a defendant or if it's a victim or if it's anything like that, it's about this person and their life and their life matters. And so that's been so important. And so the victims that I have kept in touch with and just the stories that they have overcome coming through the criminal justice system is not easy. And it really does take strength. Our criminal justice system is not perfect. It is hard and it's rule bound and it can be strict. And those rules don't always benefit. In fact, most of the time you're trying to work through the rules to make it benefit somebody. And it can be very hard. And so getting through that to be able to shine with hope in your life is something that I want for so many people. So important. Yeah. And so I have victims in this community that I see them and I, especially at our Flowers on the Lake event, Mm -hmm. love to come to that and to just really remember that life is so much more about one little piece of your life when you go through a criminal case and that it's really about the people in your life and who you surround yourself with. And so I don't know, I could give you a specific case. There was a lady that came in, she came in from another country and She had several children that the man that she was married to left her here in this country with, and she had no resources. He just divorced her here and left her here. Just left. Yeah. And she didn't have any education. She didn't have any money. And so she was living in an apartment. She was trying to go to school, stay here on a student visa. So she was trying to stay here legally. And she met a man and ended up marrying him. And he was terribly abusive, put a knife to her throat at one point. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. She left her apartment, ran next door, and was banging on the door asking for help. And, of course, that neighbor called 911. And she didn't even know she could call 911. She didn't know what that was. Was she from a country where domestic violence was okay? And so she came into my office and I started talking to her and it dawned on me very quickly. She didn't even know that she could call 911 for help. Like she didn't know what that was. Um, Oh my goodness. We ended up prosecuting this defendant and he had a criminal history out of Chicago, which I don't know why Chicago is coming full circle. That's an interesting (laughs) thing. I just picked this one out of the blue. Yeah. But he I'm had from been, Chicago, yeah. by the way. <laughs> and he had been convicted up there several times, and I went and found his criminal history, and he's what we call a habitual offender if you've been to prison yeah. multiple times. So he was 25 to life. So we went after him for a good long prison sentence and took him out of the picture. And then we worked with her with our Montgomery County Women's Center. And of course, this is when I was a prosecutor. And got her an apartment up by Dallas, got her kids backpacks to go to school, got them up to get her back into school. And she got a degree and got her life together and just really blossomed and her children happy. And it was just a wonderful. That's awesome. Yeah. And and it it was a simple one, right? Really, at the end, it was just the system kind of came together for her and and she never called because she just didn't know that anyone would help. And I think the end of the day, that's really the message that we want to get out. I mean, that's huge. I mean, you, so you put the guy away. Good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it didn't stop there. That's not the point of the story. Right. 
Exactly. <laughs> That's not the point of the story. And, right. and the, yeah. the point is you, you've changed the life for this woman yeah. and you gave her hope. You gave her opportunity and yeah. that that's huge. That's, that's truly judge. That's truly changing the game. And, and thank you so much for, for your work and what you've done and what you continue to do. So the future, who knows what the future is going to bring, right? But do you have a five-year, 10-year plan? I mean, I do. I have oh, some yeah. plans for okay. this community. Kind of thought you did. Yeah. Any, any, I, uh, anything you'd like to share? I had two goals when I ran for office that I would like okay. to do as judge. Part of it is that the big things that I'm already doing is the domestic violence docket and the, the mental health treatment court. Obviously, I want to work on those and really expand services in the community. One of the ways that our community can really benefit is there's a movement across the country for a family justice center. And what we see happening in lots of communities is that there's tons of nonprofits that spring up all over the place and they have wonderful services in one little space, right? And when a victim comes to a situation where they need services, whether they are still in a relationship that they need help, they haven't gotten out yet, whether they are at the point of calling law enforcement and making a report, whether they need a protective order, whether they need legal services, whether they need mental health help, they need a counselor, they need relocation. There's just so many different things a victim may need and where mm -hmm. they need those help, those different things at different times in their lives, right? Or through the path of getting out of that relationship and then getting to the next step in their life of being self-sufficient, whether it's career, whether it's, I just need clothes for a job interview, all of those things, you have to go to so many different places to get them. And victims live in a state of trauma and trauma affects your brain in such a way that you can't logically just live your life on a day-to-day. -day. You live in survival mode. And long-term trauma, like domestic violence, affects your ability to do that in a steady way. And so what we would find is victims come in to a law enforcement investigation, and they're unable to really be self-sufficient. And so we would send them out with oh, you need a protective order. You need to go to this agency. You need um, relocation. You need to go to this agency. You need counseling. You need to go here. You need to go here. You need Too to overwhelming. Hard to get a job, right? You need to, you know, you need to get your kids into school. You need to go here. You, it was all these things. And they were so overwhelmed that they would just quit. And I would, I didn't blame them. If it yeah, was- Yeah, they just give up. It's too much. Yeah, I, I would quit too. And, but that's when we would lose them to go back to the abuser because the abuser would call them and say, you can't do this on your own. Let me help you and come back oh, to me, right? Manipulation. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's when we would lose them. And so what I have seen happen with family justice centers is all of those nonprofits, all of those agencies come together in one space and they all are housed under the same roof to help that victim in the space where the victim is. So that victim goes to one place and everyone comes to them. And so that's awesome idea. Yes. Montgomery needs that. And it is my hope and dream that I, and this, I'll tell you this, instead of running for office, this is what I was going to do. And then God said, run for office. And I said, okay, if you help me start a family justice center, God, and he, 
every wow, time negotiating I, with the big guy. Yes. And he said, <laughs> I promise you every time that you get a chance to speak, you can talk about your family justice center. And okay. I said, yeah, God, that is what I will do. And so here I am. <laughs> <laughs> and right. so this is the deal. And so this is my dream as um, one of the things that Montgomery County really needs. It's more than just domestic violence. It's for people of all sorts, but it also dovetails in with mental health services, right? People sure. in domestic violence situations need mental health services. And that's also my mental health court. And so all of those people would be also helped with that. And so that's the one thing you ask for two. The second. Okay, yeah, but, but that's so that's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you put your, it, it's going to yes. happen. It's a goal of yours. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, look what you've done so far. So that's going to happen. Thank you. The second thing is working with my legislators to put some laws into place. I've got some things that I see gaps. I would really like to see lethality assessments is just one example done by law enforcement at the scene of an investigation to ask about all of those red flags so that when we have those present, the law enforcement can get the victim into services right away. And that's really, really important to me, again, because of that statistic that victims who are given services are the ones who survive their relationships. And that's what I really want to see. So that is important to me is that we change the laws to be proactive from the very, very beginning instead of reactive on the back end. So those are my two goals. So goal number two seems like... Certainly doable, but it's going to take some convincing, right? So it's always interesting to me that something like this comes up and I'm like, well, that's a slam dunk. Of course, we're going to, you know, approve that and move forward. But there's always, you got to play politics. And yeah. so best of luck to you and, and accomplishing. You. I know goal number one is that's done. That's going to happen. No, no problem. Goal <laughs> seems, number two will good. happen. Yeah. <laughs> it might be a little bit more arduous of a process. So, but good luck to you on both. Thank so you. as you reflect back over your life and career and who have been the major game changers in your life? You know, I was raised with a really, really good family. My parents were very instrumental in kind of instilling in me the values that were really important. Hard work, mm -hmm. personal integrity. My dad is my hero. So um, wow, that's awesome. I love to hear I that. I say that. I love my dad. I think that Tom Bradley, as who I mentioned from the U.S. Attorney's Office, he really just changed the course of my life in steering me towards becoming a prosecutor and really just that mentality of every day when you get up and go to work, it should be about what you give back and what you give to others. And so for me- it's All about serving, right? Yeah. And so I really think that those are the people that you want to surround yourself with. Those are the people that you want to really emulate. And so yeah. I aspire to share that with others. And along the way, I've had the opportunity to have- interns and employees and people who I've supervised. And it's my favorite thing when I get a card or a thank you letter and they share words with me that they got the message and that they have wow. changed their lives to do that. Because really that's kind of the ripple effect, right? As I send people out in the world to do that. So that's important. Wow. Awesome. Listening to all of your accomplishments and what your plans are. When I first started this podcast some time ago and we called it Game Changers, this is exactly what I had. You know, my vision was to get people on the podcast who have a story to tell, who have made a difference in this world, who are going to inspire others to make a difference. And man, what you've done 
You are such a game changer, Judge Hudson. Thank you so much for everything you've done here in Montgomery County. And I just know, I just know that your work is going to go way beyond Montgomery County, already has, beyond Montgomery County, beyond Texas. Who knows what the future is going to bring, but I know the best is yet to come. Oh, sure. well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for letting me share all the things. Yeah, I yeah. appreciate and the opportunity. A lot of information shared today. If you want just two nuggets for our listeners to walk away with, you want them to really remember from our discussion today, what would those two be? I would definitely say when it comes to domestic violence, because that's really what we talked about today is never give up on a victim, always be there. And it's about education and resources. So if you're dealing with somebody who is in a domestic violence situation, the best thing you can do is go online and look up some of those resources. Go to Domestic Violence Hotline. There are organizations. I mean, you Google the basics and it is all there. There's national resources there, and I'm not going to say any of them because I just don't want to get myself in a situation. Oh, yep, um, okay. But the national domestic violence organizations that are online, I use them myself. Okay. And it's all about statistics, but there's safety planning on there. And if you are in a position that you need to help somebody, educate yourself first before you start getting in the middle of that situation because. Yeah. Domestic violence is one of those things that it can get dangerous for you. Domestic right. violence offenders not only harm their loved ones, but they harm the people around them when it gets dangerous and violent. And they yeah, are known statistically to harm all of the people that are trying to help. And so before you get involved, educate yourself. But it is supposed to be about a message of hope. And so make sure that you are surrounding yourself with God's love too. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Perfect. And never give up on that person, right? Never no matter what, never give up on them. So important. Judge Echo Hudson, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you taking the time from your busy schedule. I know you've got a lot going on. So thank you for taking the time this morning. And we wish you and yours the very best in 2024. Thank you, Jeff, so much for having me. Yeah, I love being here. Appreciate it. Of course. Yes, thank you. And to our listeners out here, Thank you for tuning in to Game Changers. I so appreciate you. I know today was a great day, and I know tomorrow is going to be even better. Peace, everyone. Find out more about the show at GameChangersWithJeff.com. And make sure you're following Game Changers on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are everywhere. Never miss an episode. We appreciate you listening. Grateful for your following.